was a discussion amongst preachers today, and it has to do with how much application is done during a sermon. So you have uh, kind of two different extremes. On one extreme, there are those who think there shouldn't be any application that comes from the preacher's mouth. In other words, the preacher should just exegete the text. Just pull out what the Scripture is saying and, and not apply it to anybody that's listening. So not give uh, practical application and say, here is a way that we can uh, apply this verse to our life. You just you allow the Holy Spirit to do that. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies God's Word, and that is not the role of a, of a preacher. So no application, just exposition. Then there's another extreme, and you've probably heard those kinds of sermons where there's really no exposition, but it's all application. So you hear Bible in the first five minutes of the sermon, and maybe the preacher or the pastor reads a verse, and then that's it. That you don't hear the Bible anymore. Everything else is, you know, a topic, and it's all practical application. You know, how to raise a, a, a rated R G kid in a in a rated R world, or um, how to make every day a Friday, um, <laughs> things like that. Kristen and I want to collaborate on a book. You know, every day is a Monday. Totally different. Totally different. But. Um, and so some will just, it'll all be application, and there really won't be any exposition uh, from Scripture uh, at all. So we're sort of in between. You know, my preaching style, I'm sure you could figure that out, because I'm describing it. We're sort of in between. Definitely on the exposition side, we had a little bit of application, a little, little bonus there. Uh, but not a lot, not a lot, because we do believe that that is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who um, is able to uh, apply God's Word to you. In fact, even if you just had exposition, you didn't have somebody telling you how to uh, apply God's Word to your life, the Holy Spirit can do that. In fact, I know of one famous preacher, and he said, you know, he, he, he always gave application at the end of his sermon, and as, uh, as an experiment, he said, you know, I just feel like this, this Sunday, I'm not going to do any application whatsoever. I'm just going to exposit the Word. I'm just going to preach and teach what it's saying. And I'm not going to apply it to anybody's life at all. I'm just going to do that, and then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to walk off the stage. And he said it was fascinating because the following week, he had never had so many people come up to him and tell him how applicable his sermon was to their life. It was pretty cool. It was just the work of the Holy Spirit, just ministering to His people and speaking to God's people, okay, and, and illuminating God's Word and showing you um, what it means to actually obey God and to carry out what we're, what we're preaching through or teaching through. So I say that because uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think today there's going to be a whole lot of application. It's going to be, it's going to be heavy on the exposition side. Um, a lot of what we're, we're looking at today are, are some restatements that John is making. So they are themes that we have preached through before, earlier in the book of 1 John. He is restating some things in a slightly uh, different way. And we're going to see today, and next Sunday especially, we'll really get into this theme of assurance that is in the book of 1 John. John is writing this letter to assure people. He's writing it to assure people. For those that are listening and reading his words that are Christians, he wants to assure them that they are Christians. He wants them to know, right, in their, in their heart of hearts, that he wants them to know that they are saved. Because there's great joy that comes from knowing that you are connected and have been brought through Jesus to God. There's great joy, fullest joy, to be had there. And so John wants to assure those who are of the church that they are in fact Christians and in Christ. But he also wants to assure another group. He wants to assure those who are the false teachers who are not Christians. He wants to assure them that they are not in Christ. He wants to make it very clear and he does it by giving some tests, right? He says, here's some things for you to, to think about. 
Here's some things for you to talk about. And the answers you come up with okay, is going to help you to distinguish whether or not you are a Christian, whether you are in Christ or not. And so he's writing to a culture that's not very different from ours and that there's a lot of confusion about that. There's a lot of confusion. There are people who are not Christians who say they are Christians and there's people who are Christians who, who struggle with having any kind of assurance that they actually, they actually are. And so it's similar to what uh, Peter says in, in chapter 1 uh, of 1 Peter where he says, I want you to make your calling and your election sure. He's saying, that to, he's saying that to the church. I want you to make your calling and your election sure. Because only one of two things is going to happen there. Either you're going to make your calling and election sure. And you're going to be filled with joy because Jesus loves you. Okay? You love Jesus. And, and you have hope. You've been redeemed. Or you're going to discover that there actually is no sure calling. There is no sure election in your life. There is no sure salvation. And that should wake you up. And it should draw you back to Jesus. It's much like Paul says when he says we should test ourselves. We should examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. We should examine our hearts. Don't make, don't make assumptions. Don't assume. We've got all different reasons today of why we are Christians and, and, and why we are going to go to heaven. And it ranges from I'm a good person to I've always gone to church. And neither one of those are any of the tests that John gives in this book. It doesn't matter whether or not you're a good person. In fact, that has, it really has no bearing. All of us who are Christians would say we're really not good people. There are some good things in us and it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. But if left to ourselves, apart from God, we, we would all attest to you that we are not good at all. We're not good. We weren't the good people. We didn't clean ourselves up. We didn't follow a bunch of rules and get our act together and then God saved us. It wasn't like that at all. So it's not about how good you are. And there's many good people who are going to be good and who are going to stand in judgment before Jesus. And he's going to say, depart from you, from me. I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, wait a minute. Look at all the great stuff that we did, right? Matthew 7. And he's going to say, no, I don't know you. Okay, so it's not about just being a good person. It's not about going to church. It's not just about checking Christian on the ballot. It, it's not about giving money. It's not about any of these things. It is about faith in Jesus Christ. It's about trusting Jesus Christ. It's about loving Jesus. It's about following Jesus. It's about Him being the center of everything you are and everything you do. So how do we sort that out? Make sure that we're really in this for Jesus. And that's what John is trying to do. He's trying to do that. So it's extraordinarily helpful. So I hope today will just be more joy for those of us who are saved. For those of you who are unsaved, I pray there'd be more conviction. More conviction that he would use this to turn you, turn you away from a path that leads to destruction and turn you to Jesus, the way that leads to life. Let's pray. We'll get into 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Father in heaven, thank you for this afternoon. God, we thank you for the rain. We know that it is your rain that, that brings life uh, and we know that it comes from your hand and so without that, we, uh, we die. God, thank you for your grace. Um, thank you for this warm place that we have to meet. Um, thank you as I look out and see people uh, that I haven't seen in a while that I love and, and, and friends. God, thank you for bringing them here safely. Thank you for a time that we have this afternoon to worship you together. God, we're worshiping you throughout the week, hopefully, prayerfully on our own. But then we come together this, 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 this one day out of the week uh, and we lift our voices together and we turn our ears together. We raise our voices together. We pray together. We worship you together. So thank you for this family time that you've set aside for us today. God, as we read your word, we ask that through your Holy Spirit that you would apply your word to our hearts. God, the great meaning and purpose would come from your revelation today. And there would be some this afternoon who, who see things they've never seen before and who love you in a way they've never loved you before. And trust you in a way they've never trusted you before. Well, big hopes we have today, God. We bring them to you because you're the author of all these things. We love you and trust you and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible, open up First John chapter 4. Only about five weeks or so we'll be through this book of First John. And then we'll do something a little different on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And then we'll do a, um, a series, a topical series actually, to start our year off. And then we'll go back to the Old Testament. We'll be studying through Jonah together. 
and then back to the New. We, we kind of go back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament, making sure we cover as much as we can. So today, 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 12 through 16 is where we're going to be. Uh, but we're actually going to jump somewhere else for a while before we even get in here. And let me show you the reason we're going to do that. If you look, we're looking at five verses today. And I want you to see how many times this phrase uh, abides in us or abide in God or abide in Him or abide in His love. I want you to see how many times it shows up. We're reading five verses today. And in four of the five verses, John uses this phrase. So he's using that phrase because he heard it from Jesus. So what I want us to do is to turn back to John chapter 15. We're going to stay there for a bit. We're going to work through the first 11 verses of John chapter 15 because this concept of, of abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in us, it's sort of a mysterious one. And we want to understand what it is that John is talking about. So let's go back to these words from Jesus. Uh, Jesus is preaching, or he's teaching his disciples right here. Um, this is like, this is a part of his farewell discourse, it's called. So this is one of the, the last, you know, this is the last real meaty, full teaching that he gives his disciples. And this is right there in the middle of it. So it's important. Um, Jesus, is, his life is winding down. And he's gathering up his, his best friends. And he's giving them what, what he thinks is very important instruction from God before he, before he goes to the cross. And so you're going to see in here that it's Jesus who uses this idea of mutual abiding. That when you are a Christian, one of the ways that the Bible describes that is that you are abiding in Jesus. And Jesus is abiding in you. And that's a biblical concept, and it's only a biblical concept. We abide with people. We don't abide in people. There is a closeness and an intimacy between a Christian and Jesus that is unparalleled in our life. My closest relationship on this planet is with my wife, with Kristen. And I don't abide in Kristen. I abide with Kristen. And that is the closest possible relationship between a husband and wife that you can have on this earth. But it's still, it still is not what Jesus and John are talking about, this mutual abiding. And so let's read through the first 11 verses and, and see some of the, the characteristics of this abiding. Four words I hope are going to jump out to us there. Fruit, discipline, intimacy, and joy. You're going to see that that is what this abiding consists of. It consists of fruit. Okay, and we'll see what that means. And discipline, and intimacy, and joy. Okay, good, close relationships, and of course your relationship with Jesus, it should be those four things. It should involve, if He loves you, discipline. It, it, it should involve this intimate relationship. There should be fruit that is born in your life, and it should be the source of great joy. And so John's going to talk about that. Or Jesus, I'm sorry, in this Gospel according to John. Chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And then he's going to go on to talk about branches. So there's three agents here. There is the vine dresser, or the, the farmer, okay, the one who oversees the vine. There is the vine, and there are the branches on the vine. Okay, the vine dresser is God the Father. Okay, like Paul says in the book of Acts or, Acts or Romans, he says that the seed was planted, I watered it, but it is God, it is God who makes it grow. Okay, God is the one who, who tends to us and assures that there is any growth in our life. So God the Father, He is the, the vine dresser, He's the farmer. And Jesus is the vine. And we are the branches. So have you ever seen a vineyard? You can see that there is no disconnection between the vine and the branches. They are, they are one and the same. It is the same plant. And so that's where, from this metaphor, Jesus is going to pull that teaching out that 
I abide in you, and you abide in me. And he says, look, it's like a vine. You've seen a vine and you've seen branches. It's not some separate entity. It's not just close to the vine. Okay, these branches receive their, their life from the vine. And they are, they are intimately and necessarily connected with one another. And Jesus says that I am the true vine. If you look in the Old Testament, God would use in, in Isaiah, he would use this term vine to describe his people. Israel was described as his vine. So Jesus comes and says, I am the, I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. I am the true people of God. I am the obedient one. I am the one who obeys and honors God the way the people of God should, but haven't. I am the true vine. Okay, and we are the branches. And God is the vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So he says that there are two things uh, that God the Father does with this, with this vine. And when you look out at the church, right, um, here today or in any church, it's, it's not like, well, we're all branches and we're all Christians because we're in the building. And if you're in the building, that means you're a Christian and you're abiding in Jesus. We know that's not the case. So in every community okay, or, uh, of Christians, in every church community, there is the visible church, everybody that we see. But then there's the invisible church. There is who God sees as actually are my people. Actually, the, the regenerate, the saved ones who love me and follow me. And then there are others who are there, and they're with the people, but they're not actually following me. So it says that God's interaction with, with these, all, all these branches is there are some, he does one of two things, there are some that he cuts off and takes away, and there are others that he prunes. And we're going to see as we go on here that those branches, those members and, and attenders who are a, a part of the church but are against Christ, who don't believe his gospel, who, like they're dealing with in Ephesus where John is writing in 1 John, where they are teaching false gospel, where they're pulling people away from Jesus. It says this is what God does with those branches. He takes them away. He takes them away. There's been an experience in many churches where God has taken people away and it's been a difficult and painful thing. But then many find out that it was a good thing. It was a good thing. Because God was taking away something that was harmful, that was bad for the church, that was spreading things that were not for the good of His people. And so God takes some away, and we're going to see what, where, they, where they go, ultimately. They're thrown into a fire. What about with the rest? What does it say that he does? This is where we get that idea of discipline that Hebrews 12 talks about in Proverbs and in our whole Bible. And it says this, that a, that a loving father, right, this is how you know, like when you're a child, this is how you know your father loves you, he disciplines you. The father who loves his child disciplines him. So Proverbs 13 goes as far to say that the father who doesn't discipline his child actually hates his child. Really strong words. We would think that, well, no, no, the, the, the one who really loves the child is one who just makes much of him and is always giving him things and never telling him anything's wrong and he's just blessing him and pouring things out and, and never discipline. But God says, no, it's the, the one who brings discipline. That is a sign of love. And that's what Hebrews gets at. It says that God disciplines all those whom he loves. So if you're being disciplined, what do you know? You know that God loves you. You know that this mutual abiding is taking place. You know that Jesus is the vine and you are the branch. You're the branch. You're grafted into Jesus. You're, you're one with Jesus. You're with him. He loves you. And you know he loves you if God disciplines you. If God introduces pain and suffering into your life for your good. That's what discipline is. It is God introducing pain and suffering into your life for your good. Some of you grew up with bad theology that said that, no, God never 
has his hand behind pain and suffering. But that's not what your Bible teaches. God's revealed word says that, that no, no, when pain and suffering comes into your life, I will bring that pain and suffering. My hand is behind that and I'm going to use that for your good. I'm going to use that to train you in godliness. I'm going to, I'm going to use that so that you become desperate and turn back to me like he did with his people Israel throughout the book of Judges, remember? I'm going to do this to, to knock you on your back so that you look up, so that you see me, so that you cry out to me, so that you lean on me, so that you depend on me. And the way Jesus describes it to his disciples, he says, when that happens, God the Father is pruning you. Pruning you. That sounds painful. We, 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 have a, we live on an acre and we've got, my goodness, we have, I like yard work. It's a good thing because there's plenty of yard work to do. We've got like a hundred trees and bushes and it's ridiculous. And we've got these rose bushes and I think it's an interesting analogy that Jesus uses because when I see Kristen go out there and prune these rose bushes, I mean, if I was that rose bush and she was coming out to me, right, with like a pair of shears and she just starts cutting on me, I think I'd have some words. That does not look like that feels good. That would be painful. Okay, so that's the, that's the, that's the metaphor. It is painful. Discipline is painful. God does not grow us, okay, in this intimate relationship with him, uh, him and develop us and make us more like Him and holy through blessing. He does it through suffering. And suffering from God's hand is, I believe, His greatest gift. That's so, it's so paradoxical to think like that, though. And it's very counterculture. But understand that, that that is a sign. It is a sign in your relationship with God that He loves you that he cares for you if he comes and he prunes you. So we see pruning when John's talking in 1 John about this abiding in him and him abiding in you. Here's here's what it involves. It involves this pruning. Verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then here Jesus says it, Abide in me and I in you. That's where John's getting it from as he's writing now to these readers. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So here, you see this over and over again. He's going to do it all the way through verse 8. He's saying, you're going to bear much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. We'll come back to that. If anyone does not abide in me, here it is, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So here's a distinction Jesus makes. Some people think that when the Bible talks about abiding in Jesus, it's talking about like the super mature relationship with Jesus that some people have and that you can attain to. So there's, there's being a Christian and not abiding in Jesus. And there's being a Christian and abiding in Jesus. And it's this incredible kind of second level Christianity. But that's not what John is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because he's saying those who don't abide in me, okay, are not Christians. They're ones who are thrown away. They are thrown into the fire. What he's talking about is put under eternal judgment The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's an image of hell that Jesus is bringing. So abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you is something that every single one of us should experience if we're Christians. So you're going to see, here's that assurance pace that John brings. When you understand what it means to abide in Jesus and for Him to abide in you, and you start to think, A... That's me. Then you're assured of your salvation. Or B, that's not me. Then you're assured of your position outside the gates and your need to turn to Jesus. We should all abide in Christ like this. Verse 7, if you abide in me, sing it over and over again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What a, what a loving thing to say. It says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, some Christians take that out of context, right? You know, they name it and claim it and just have faith and believe it and, and just say what you want. And if you have enough faith, God will give it to you because he's already told you. He just wants to he, he just give you everything that you desire. 
But that's not what he's saying. What does he say before that? What's the condition? He's saying, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Okay, so there is, a, there is a kind of prayer that goes to God and requests that go to God when his word is not abiding in you. And don't expect God to answer that prayer the way you want it to go. And then there are prayers and requests that are made to God that are the result of God's word abiding in you. And if God's word is abiding in you, then what you are praying to God is God's word. So you know him and his truth and his word is abiding in you. It's just, it's filling you so that what you want and what your desires are, are God's desires. It says elsewhere, whatever you ask in my name. There's other ways that the New Testament puts us to assure us that God is not just in the business of giving his children whatever they want, but there is an intimacy There is an intimacy that we experience when we are closely connected with God and His Word is abiding in us and our prayers and our requests to Him are an outpouring and an overflow of His Word in us. And when that happens, God is answering those prayers and He is giving you what you're asking for because you're asking for what He wants for you. So this abiding in Jesus is an intimate relationship where we love Jesus and we want what He wants and He's giving us what He wants. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So He says that over and over again. So He said, okay, with this, this mutual abiding, there is discipline there in this relationship with Jesus. There is an intimacy that is there. And there is also fruit. You will bear fruit. This is what that means. That means that if you're abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in you, if you are a Christian, according to Jesus, there will be results. There's going to be results in your life. And God is glorified in those results and in that you prove to be my disciples. So there's no such thing, God says, there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't bear fruit. He said it's by bearing fruit, it's by results in your life because of my love for you that you actually prove to be my disciples. It's like John 13, 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. Because that love is the result, okay, of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in you. So you will bear fruit as a Christian. You're going to, you're going to love people the way we've been talking about loving people the last few weeks. You're going to obey Him. You're going to follow Him. You're going to want to do what He wants you to do. You're going to commit to Him and commit to His people. You're going to be convicted of sin. And you're going to turn from sin. These are the kinds of things that are going to happen. And this is what actually glorifies God according to verse 8. So it's not our intentions. It's not our recommitments. It's not the prayers that we read together. Okay, It's the life that loves and honors God that flows from abiding in Christ, that glorifies Him. In fact, when we come, think about this, when we come on a Sunday and we sing worship songs and we sing them with, uh, to use expression, we sing them with all our heart and we, we mean what we're singing. Okay, but if we do that, if we do that and we sing these songs, we worship God, and yet we're not bearing any fruit in our life, then God is not glorified in our worship. It's by the bearing of fruit, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 8, that He is glorified. And then remember, you go back to verse 5 where He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in Him, He it is that bears much fruit. So it happens. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean that people who aren't Christians don't do anything. Clearly they do. But you cannot do anything of any sort of eternal significance apart from abiding in Jesus. That's what he means. 
apart from Christ, apart from abiding in Him and Him abiding in us, we can do nothing with eternal significance. And then verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things, here's the last word, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus gives like His purpose at the, the end of this talk about why He's explaining this mutual abiding. And He says, I'm, I'm saying these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And this is the teaching that John received. That there, there, there is no real full joy apart from Jesus. It doesn't exist. There is a sort of diluted happiness. There is a circumstantial happiness. But there is no full joy apart from Christ. Full joy, no matter what the circumstances are. No matter what sort of path life takes you down. No matter what is happening. A deep and abiding joy. A, a happiness that is rooted in significance. That you can weather any storm. That is the result of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us. And Jesus, He loves us. He's teaching us these things because He wants us to have this joy. He wants us to have this joy. It is not a, a, a trite pursuit in your life to want to be happy. God has made you to want to be happy. And any of us would be silly to deny that we want to be happy. But we will only be happy in Christ. That's the point. We'll only be content. We'll only be satisfied. We will only have joy in Christ. In this mutual abiding. So with that understanding, now we can move quickly through these five verses. This is what John has in mind. That sort of abiding relationship. That bearing fruit. That being disciplined by a loving Father. That intimacy and that full joy that compares to no relationship. That is what John is thinking of. Remembering the words of Jesus when he says four times in five verses, abide in God and he must abide in you. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. We haven't seen God. You haven't seen God. No one in history not those in the Old Testament, not those in the New Testament, not the greatest of the patriarchs, not the greatest of the apostles. No one has seen God. They've seen portions of His glory revealed. And it was all they could handle. It lit Moses up like a light bulb. When he came back to his people, he looked like a freak. And everybody wondered what was wrong with him. And it was because God revealed a part of His glory to him. And he almost died because of it. No one has ever looked on and seen God. But because no one has seen God, right? We know this. It is a, it is a challenge. How do I have assurance of a God that I can't see? Remember, he, he's working at assurance here. How do I have assurance of a God that I can't see? How do I have assurance of, of salvation from a God that I can't see? I mean, this isn't... Here, we've got a special guest today. Jesus... Come on down, and, and Jesus comes out and, and you know, sits down, and we, we give him some bread and some fish, and he does his thing, and, and we give him some water, and he does his thing, and, and we go down the lake, and he does his thing, and, and we just watch the miracles, and we see all these things, and, and, and wow, it's, I can have assurance in this. Here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm seeing him perform miracles, but that's not the case for us. We, we're, we're talking about That's why we look like, we look like strange people to the world. 
Right? Because we're worshiping this, this God, this thing they would say, he, she, it, that is not tangible and that you cannot see. And then we talk about having salvation and, and being saved in the spiritual world that you can't see and people's eyes just cross. You know, when we're talking to them, it just sounds like foolishness, Paul says, to the world. But, but to us, it's the power of the gospel, and it makes perfect sense because our eyes have been opened to these things, and we believe that what God's word says is true. But no one has seen God. But Paul says, but, 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 but John says, but here's the deal. No one has ever seen God, and you could kind of insert an and, and yet, you can, you can do that. You can put a parenthesis the way this is structured in the Greek. You can sort of put that right before he says this word, if, in verse 12. So he makes that point, no one has ever seen God, and yet, in other words, here's how you do see God, is what he's going to tell us. But we don't see God, we don't want to see God, but we do see the effects of God, and we do see the hand of God. And we do see God working. Remember that abiding and that relationship and those who are connected to God in that way as Christians. And yet, if we love one another, God's, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So no one has ever seen God. And yet, if we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what he's saying is, is that people can see God today. They can see God because God is abiding in his church and his church loves each other and loves one another like no one else on planet earth loves one another. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's what he's saying. This is how the world is going to know that you're my disciples because you love one another. This is how I'm glorified because of this fruit that's being produced, that necessarily is produced when you abide in me. He's saying if we love one another, okay, the way that we should, this way that we've been talking about the last several weeks, okay, that is because God is abiding in us. That's why we love each other that way. Not because you're great, I'm great, you're nice, I'm nice, you're kind, I'm kind. We're not. It is because God is abiding in us and His love, we'll look at this more next week, but His love is perfected in us. So God's perfect love, loving us and now loving others through us is a way that we see God. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. There's that assurance. Right. How do I know? How do I know I'm saved? How do I know that I abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in me? How do I know that I'm a Christian? I mean, he's obsessed with that in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him. 2, 5. By this we may know that we are in Him. 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God. 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. 3, 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. 3, 24. By this we know that He abides in us. 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. 4, 6. By this we know the Spirit of truth. 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. And 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, this is why I'm writing these things to you. So that you may know, have assurance, so that you may know that you have eternal life because if you have that assurance, right, the joy that he stated that he's after for these people he loves. Because anybody we love, we want them to have joy. He's saying that joy will come as you are assured and know that this mutual abiding, that that's you. That that's you. So here he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. How do we know? What follows? Because he has given us of his spirit. 
So here's his answer. How do we know? How do we know that we're saved? Because God has given us His Holy Spirit. That's how we know. God has given you His Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says that when God gives you His Holy Spirit, it's like placing a seal. Not like. It's placing a seal on you. So His Holy Spirit in the Christian is a seal. What is, it, what is it sealing? And it goes on in verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1. It is a guarantee. A guarantee. Not a guarantee from another person. A guarantee from God. Right? You've all bought something that came with a guarantee. And you got your money back two weeks later because it didn't do what it was guaranteed to do. That is not how God operates. Oh, sorry, I thought that was going to go better than it did. You know, God never does this. He never, never says, my bad. That doesn't happen. And God says in Ephesians 1 through Paul that the Holy Spirit is placed in us as a seal and it is a guarantee. A guarantee of what? A guarantee of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit is like this, the first fruits of what's to come. The Holy Spirit is there guaranteeing what God is going to do and to work and to bring in our life for all eternity. God does not give His Holy Spirit and take His Holy Spirit. When God gives His Holy Spirit, it is a seal that will preserve us until the day of judgment. It's beautiful. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you've got every reason for joy in your life. If you've got your Holy Spirit, then you are abiding in Christ, and Christ is abiding in you. He's abiding in you through His mediated presence through the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus abides in you. His Spirit abides in you. So John is saying, this is how you can know that you are saved. This is how, how you can know that you are, are, are with Jesus. This is how you can have full and complete and real joy if the Holy Spirit is in you. So we hear that though. Thankfully he goes on because now we say, we start to get excited and say, yes, I don't know if the Holy Spirit is in me. Right? Do you find yourself asking that or, or wondering that? And you've probably been told lots of different ways that you know whether or not the Holy Spirit is in you. Well, did you speak in tongues? Some of you say yes and I imagine the majority of you would say no. I mean, I took four years of Spanish AP in high school, is that what you mean? But I think it was the Holy Spirit as much as it was just learning the language. Well, did you have some kind of a, of a, of a dramatic experience where you started shaking? And you were on the ground like a, a fish out of water. That's how you know that the Holy Spirit. Do you, hear, do you hear voices, dreams, visions? Have dramatic things like this happened in your life? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Some people will ask you that. That's just a synonym for becoming a Christian, by the way. But they'll describe it as like this other experience that you have where something dramatic happens. There's some sort of drama. There's some sort of experience that is just very strange and abnormal. And, and that's how you just had this urge to get a tambourine. And that's how you know that the Holy Spirit is just, that's how you know that the Holy Spirit is in you. So there's lots of different ways and ideas. And the Holy Spirit does do something dramatic in us, but it's not it's not necessarily all that stuff. I'm not saying that there aren't feelings and emotions and experiences that are tied to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But this is not, this is not ever given to us as something to look for as an evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you and therefore you are abiding in Christ and therefore you can have joy. That's not the biblical criteria. If those things have happened, wonderful. But they haven't. Let, let's see what the biblical drama is. What's the biblical drama that we can expect in us if the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us? Verse 14. 
This is now coming from, okay, the Holy Spirit is in you. Okay, how do I know that the Holy Spirit is in me? And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So according to verse 15, what the Holy Spirit is, is doing, what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, the way I know that the Holy Spirit is in me is that I confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And if that happens, if I confess that Jesus is the Son of God, I can know that the Holy Spirit is in me and I can know that the second half of the verse, I abide in God and God abides in me. He just takes it to another level in verse 16 when he says, So we have come to know and to believe. So first he says, See and testify. And now he says, Know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So the biblical drama that happens in you so that you know that the Holy Spirit is in you and therefore you abide in Christ and have infinite reason for joy. The biblical drama that happens because of the Holy Spirit is you see and testify. You know and believe. This is the most extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. And what's really sad it is, is all of this highly experiential stuff that gets labeled as the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh wow, He, he did this amazing thing. And the amazing thing is, uh, I spoke in tongues, or I was given a prophetic word, or I had a dream, or I had a vision. That is not the most amazing thing that the Holy Spirit does. The amazing thing that the Holy Spirit does, the thing that, that, that validates that He is in us, is that you, as a God-hater, just one day see and testify and know and believe. You actually believe the Gospel. You, you believe that it's true. It's not just a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a bedtime story. You believe it and stake your whole life on it. And that doesn't happen, John is saying, and your Bible is saying. That does not happen unless God has sent His Holy Spirit. Isn't that what it says in 1 Corinthians 12.3? Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You can't say it. I mean, you can say the words. You can slap the bumper sticker on the car. You can wave the, the flag as Jesus is Lord, but you can't really say that. In other words, you can't mean that. Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. That is Holy Spirit drama, according to the Bible. That's the crazy, freaky, I can't believe this is happening, this is unreal, this is amazing, call the newspapers. Someone says Jesus is Lord, and they mean it. You cannot say that, except in the Holy Spirit. A lot of the other things that often mistakenly get labeled as the Holy Spirit, a lot of other things can cause them. Including things misfiring in our head and eating Mexican food. <laughs> a lot of things can cause that. But what the Bible says is, but no one, no one says Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Only by the Holy Spirit. Do we think like that? Do we think and recognize, wow, that is the Spirit. Wow, 
here's a church and here is a community of people who all believe that Jesus came, lived, suffered, and died in their place and raised from the dead in their place and ascended to be with God the Father where He is now as their advocate against Satan the accuser. And that He has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in them. To seal them and to finish according to God's purpose the work that He has begun in them until completion. That when you have a community of people, you have one person that believes that and says from their heart that Jesus is Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. That is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. And you see again that last part of verse 16. This, this happens when we have the Holy Spirit. We come to know and believe the love that God has for us. So there comes a point, right? Conversion. Salvation comes to us where this Gospel story that we've heard about Jesus, all of a sudden, right? you remember this, or as a Christian, you should be reminding yourself of this every day. But you remember that, that moment or those moments where you remembered that this Gospel story is actually God loving me. You came to know and believe that this is God loving us. It's personal. It's personal. No one knows how sinful you are as well as God, number one, and number two, you. It doesn't matter how tight you and your accountability partner are. He or she doesn't know you. They don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes. But God does. God does. He knows how sick I am. He knows how rebellious I am. He knows my thoughts. He knows my actions. He knows my sin. He knows dark things about me that I don't even know. And that's what we bring to this truth. And He loves me. We know and believe that He loves us. And we're just, we're not all that nice. We're not all that cute. We're not all that fun. We're not all that great. We're not all that good. There was no one who seeks after God, Romans 3.10. No, not even one. And yet, we believe, I believe that He loves me. Not that He's just able because He's God and He can do that. But I actually believe that He loves me. Do you believe that? Not theoretical. You believe that. God loves you. That He has died for you. That He has sent His Holy Spirit to open your eyes to that fact. And apart from His death, and apart from the Holy Spirit, and apart from His work, you can't do anything. Nothing good. It's all because of Him. And John means then, for those of us who believe, to be assured. God loves me. If you, if you could believe that, I mean really believe that every moment of every day, how different would the overflow be? 
mean, wouldn't just everything be wrapped up in, I just want to obey him, I want to serve him, I want to, I want to do whatever he wants, anything against him, this one who's loved me like this, is just is repulsive, and I can't stand it, I don't want to have anything to do with it, and just purity, and holiness, and love, and affection, and worship, and devotion, and this is, this is what I want every, every, and this is what we, in these moments when we believe this truth, when we believe this gospel, that's the fruit that comes. But we're so quick, aren't we? We are so quick to forget. I mean, we'll go home tonight, some of us, and some bad news, right? You've all been there. We'll just wipe us out. And maybe in that we will forget. We'll forget. And we'd be reminded through God's Word, applied by His Holy Spirit, I know he doesn't. I know she doesn't. I know they don't. But it's okay. God does. That is the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. You feel it, don't you? Jesus isn't lying. When he says, I'm telling you these things so that your joy may be full. You've got no idea what joy is. So I'm telling you these things because there is full joy and this is the only way you're going to have it. You get like this little taste of it. There's a silly taste of it through a sermon. But if the Holy Spirit would move and apply, believe his word, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. I'll pray, and we're going to um, continue worshiping this loving God, and we do that every week through this, this time of communion. Jesus sat down with his disciples the night before his death and said, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this, and when you do this, you're going to remember me, and you're going to remember this grace, and you're going to remember what my body and my blood, what it cost, and you're going to remember that it has brought you into abiding with God and God abiding in you and it has given you your full joy. But you're forgetful. And so you're going to do this a lot. And when you do it, you're going to remember what I've done. And so that's what we do. And we like to remember it, so we do it every week. And we have leaders who are up here and want to serve you. And when you're ready, just come on down and take the bread and take the juice back to your seat. And we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your, your words, God. Just even thinking through this and preaching through this, Lord, my heart is full of joy right now. Thank you so much, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving yourself for us. God, may, may we remember these things. May we count our blessings. May we never drift far from knowing and believing the gospel. Yeah, we pray that this gospel, that the truth of this and your love for us, that it would produce fruit in our life. That we would love each other and love one another, not with a pretentious love, not with a, a, a fake love, not with a, a conditional love, but that we would love one another just in incredible ways and bear one another's burdens and give to one another and serve one another. That we would be enabled to do that because of how great the love is that you have for us. You've poured so much and continue to pour so much. We can pour ourselves out, God. So help us to believe these things, Lord. You know we see dimly. God, you know we're a forgetful people. Lord, you know that we easily get choked out by the cares of this world. We need your word. We need your spirit. Remind us. Keep us close so that we can remember that we have confidence to come to the throne of grace and appeal to you that we have confidence to cast our cares on you because you care for us, that we have confidence to, to come to you and to pray to you and to abide in you because you already abide in us. So we love you. And we give you praise and glory and honor. We pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
back 